Hi all, and welcome to Conservation Realist. I am about a week and a half late with this episode, and that's just how life is sometimes. It's been a remarkably um, full and overwhelming couple of months, and it finally caught up with me last week. But not to worry, I am on track to keep sharing these remarkable conversations with you over the next couple of months. So today's episode, episode seven, is a conversation with Dr. Ruth Brennan. She is a transdisciplinary researcher, policy advisor, and integration expert, and we'll talk more about what that means in the episode, working on environmental governance, including in small-scale fisheries in Ireland. She's a policy advisor to an Irish member of the European Parliament, and she's served as an expert advisor to the Irish and Scottish governments. And she's also worked at the interface of arts with science and policy. So yes, today we are shifting from what has been the dominant focus so far of this podcast, which is Southeast Asia, and we're zooming all the way over to Ireland, as well as Scotland for a bit, to learn about what's happening with the small-scale fishing communities, particularly the island communities there. And these communities live in a very different context in many ways from the fisheries that we've spoken about on the podcast so far, but there are many very important commonalities. On a somewhat personal note, I found it really interesting to learn more about the fisheries in Ireland because my father was from Ireland, and I'm technically an Irish citizen, and most of my relatives are, are out there. However, I don't know that much about Ireland. Um, I know less than I should. And I've recently felt a renewed drive to learn more about where my family comes from on both sides, Ireland and Japan. And so learning more about what's going on with with Ireland's fisheries and 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 management and conservation uh, was kind of a nice way to combine my my professional interest in conservation with this more personal interest as well. And I met Ruth at the I think it was the fourth World Small Scale Fisheries Congress in Chiang Mai in 2018, I believe. And uh, I do want to highlight this conference, the World Small Scale Fisheries Congress. It's put on by Too Big to Ignore, which is the global network for small scale fisheries. And it's the it's my favorite conference I think that I've been to, in part because they bring they invite and bring representatives of small scale fishing communities who actually do speak at the plenaries and, and are involved and, and active in the process. Which is something I think that more environmental management and conservation conferences should do. But uh, yeah, I remember being really immediately impressed with Ruth as a person, not only for her research, but she just has a a really great confidence, um, really incredibly intelligent insights, and is just a, a, a lovely person to spend time with. So even though our time together was quite brief there, um, I was so pleased when she uh, responded to my email out of the blue, you know, some years later um, to speak with me for this podcast. I do want to provide some background information just for those who might not be as familiar with small scale fisheries and also something that, that I didn't know necessarily before this conversation Um, The first one is the idea of individual transferable quotas, or ITQs. This is a common approach in fisheries management where, you know, a certain amount that is okay or deemed sustainable to be caught is set as a total allowable catch. And then portions of that are allocated as quotas um, to individuals, and in this case it could be fishers, it could be fishing companies, uh, and when they're transferable, it means they can be leased or sold, um, somehow transferred between quota holders. So that's in individual transferable quotas or ITQs. For the, the students who I, I know are listening, uh, if you're not familiar with this idea, I, I definitely recommend looking up more information about it as it's quite a common um, strategy in fisheries management. 
and it has its, its strengths and its weaknesses. Ruth also mentions producer organizations, um, which I could kind of guess from the context what they were, but I just confirmed by looking up um, a website from the Irish government, and they define producer organizations with an S, not a Z, are officially recognized with an S, not a Z, bodies set up by fishery or aquaculture producers to manage the activity of their members. These organizations can play an important role in the market, improving the condition for the placing on the market of their members' fishery and aquaculture products, improving economic returns for their members, stabilizing the market, avoiding and reducing as far as possible unwanted catches, contributing to the elimination of illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing, and generally coordinating the activities of their primary producer members. So very essentially the same as, as what I've seen in other places uh, as, as fisher associations. Uh, she also mentions um, critical geographies. Uh, one of her, her works that we referenced was published in a journal on creative, uh, critical sorry, geographies, and uh, I thought this was something that maybe not many people um, who are listening might be familiar with. Generally, critical geographies, it's this, this field that covers the intersection of, of place, of social context and interactions, and the environment with the power dynamics embedded at that in that intersection. And I think geography as a whole is a very um, underappreciated field, especially when we're talking about complex uh, systems as as we do in in conservation um so i I do also encourage anyone who's who's a student or just wants to learn more to to not overlook the importance of the various types of geography um, in this work another important theme that we spend quite a bit of time chatting about is the idea of co-design um, and co-design in theory is a participatory approach whereby involved stakeholders work together um, as equal collaborators um, throughout the process of developing and designing solutions. It's a fabulous idea, and it's very integral to the process of design thinking, which I referenced in a previous episode. I fully believe that well-run responsible co-design processes are the key to a more sustainable and resilient future world for us humans. Uh, Unfortunately, (laughs) the term co-design is often used in a very flippant way, and it doesn't actually reflect any real intent or plan to undergo an actual co-design process. Co-design doesn't just mean, oh, we shared our ideas with some stakeholders and they gave us some feedback, but we really already had the plan set out, so we just continued to do what we were going to do anyways with some small adjustments. That's not co-design. That's consultation, maybe. Um, Co-design is, in its best form, would have, again, the, the community members, whoever you're working with, involved in in conceiving of and driving that whole process. And Ruth ha- shares some really great thoughts and some really great examples related to co-design. And um, one reason in particular why Ruth was kind of on my radar as I was thinking of people to interview was that toward the beginning of the pandemic, um, my brother, who you might remember is, is a non-speaking autistic man and I'm his communication partner most of the time. Um, He was taking his first class ever, which was a class on modern and contemporary American poetry. And I learned a lot, too, because I've I've never really been that into poetry myself. And um, one of the things we learned about was this idea of found poetry, which is, you know, one of the more maybe modern abstract forms of poetry where poets will just find words in some environment, you know, it could be from street signs, it could be folding down every, like, the corner of every 10 pages in the book and, like, picking the word that the corner points to. Um, it could be, basically, it's it's collecting words that already exist and assembling them into a poem. And around that time, I don't know why I was on Twitter, because I honestly find Twitter 
so overwhelming and stressful. But I was on Twitter and I saw that Ruth had posted, um, found poetry from her data collected from interviews with the communities. And my brother, Danny, he loves the oceans. He was getting very, very interested in conservation. And he is he was feeding this newfound passion for poetry. So he really, we really enjoyed reading her poems together around that time. And she reads one of her poems, uh, my favorite, I think, from her collection. Uh, she reads one of those poems in our con, oh my goodness, conversation, conversation. And since I just got the word right, I'm going to use it again. This conversation was really fascinating for me. I felt like it was really wide-ranging and covered a lot of big topics while also still being really connected to a central theme that both of us really find important in our work, which is the humanity in these conservation and management processes and acknowledging and respecting that humanity. All right, before diving into the conversation, I am once again going to remind you that I so love that you're listening or reading along. Uh, I would also love it if you could help me out by liking this, sharing it, leaving comments and reviews, sending me messages about any kind of feedback that you have, and recommending this to anyone who you think would find it interesting. Um, I put a lot of work into it, and I really hope that people out there are finding it informative. Enjoy this clip of The Green Touch from Somo Twin, Ziantet, and Min Min. And then enjoy this conversation, this very informative conversation with Dr. Ruth Brennan. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons I'm interested in your work is this kind of personal connection to, to Ireland um, mm -hmm. and also my own bias in my work. Like I grew up mainly in California, but I've always worked in Southeast Asia, a little bit in Africa, a little bit in South America, Central America. Um, and even though my work stresses the importance of a local focus, I actually know very little about the local fisheries to where I grew up mm -hmm. <laughs> and even less about fisheries, small scale fisheries in, in other parts of the, the global north, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I was actually really surprised to learn that there are remote small scale fishing communities in Ireland. Mm -hmm. So um, I'd love to hear from you just for my own like personal interest. What's life like in these communities? What are the realities facing them? Mm. Yeah, so I'll preface it by saying that my research into small scale fisheries in Ireland has very much been focused on the Irish islands. Mm -hmm. So it's a very small subset of the small, small scale fishing communities within Ireland. Um, and small scale fishing within Ireland makes up 86% of our fishing fleet. Um, wow. Yeah. So, and the large scale vessels only make up 16% of the fishing fleet. So the small scale fishing fleet is, uh, is, is quite a large community of vessels and is by no means homogenous. So, so my studies have been very much focused on kind of a very small subset of that. Um, but yeah, I can certainly talk about what the realities are for small scale island fishers since, since that, that's what I was studying, which, and that's what I, what I learned an awful lot about. Um, so the first thing to say, I suppose, is that Ireland is unusual in the EU in that um, we don't have privatization of our fishing rights. So we don't have things like individual transferable quotas mm -hmm. whereby fishers can transfer ourselves their, their entitlements uh, to quotas to other people. So our uh, Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine, the government 
uh, it's kind of a central cornerstone of their fisheries policy that fisheries uh, fishing quota or fishing opportunities as they call them are and should remain a public resource Mm. and one of the reasons they give for that is so that uh, small fishing communities who uh, rely on fishing and for whom that's part of the fabric of the community um, that they are not disadvantaged by say larger boats being able to kind of buy up all the the fishing opportunities in practice so in theory the intention is really good in practice that's not quite how it works so if you if you kind of delve down into the nitty gritty of what uh, fishing or trying to access these um, quota control fisheries in Ireland is like uh, for small scale fisheries, particularly for island fisheries, you realize that there are an awful lot of barriers uh, that are perpetuated by the system that controls them. And when I say quota controlled uh, fisheries, I'm talking about the system of fisheries that um, is put in place by the common fishery common fisheries policy at a european union level Mm -hmm. whereby uh, the stocks within the european union member states fishery zones between 12 to 200 nautical miles and they are divided up between the members so everybody each member state is allocated certain quota rights in relation to certain species of fish each year and then each member state um, decides how those uh, quota rights are kind of doled out at uh, a national a national level. So that's what I mean by quota species. So for some species, for example, for shellfish, you don't need a quota to fish shell- shellfish. For example, for fish like, I don't know, mackerel or whiting, you do need a quota to fish those. And the fishing of those will be regulated by, for example, um, seasons or for example, by uh, what kind of tonnage you have in your boat or by the kilowatts in your engine. So quite technical things. Um, So technically, uh, small island uh, or or small boats should be able to go out and kind of fish the quota species um, that is available. Sometimes there are limits set for a month, kind of a general pot for a month. Sometimes it's every two months, depending on the species of fish. Um, what you find with the island fishers uh, specifically, and uh, some of this applies to kind of small scale fishers more generally, uh, is that, for example, uh, small boats have a much more limited range and they are much more affected by things like uh, geography, weather, tides, for example. Um, so they don't have as much of an ability to follow the fish <laughs> as right. the larger boats do. So. If, for example, it is the season, there is a window when they are allowed uh, to fish, to go out and fish, they might find that the fish are not in their waters. They're not in their inshore waters where their boats are capable of going. They can't kind of move out of those because it's too dangerous to bring the boats out there, whereas the larger vessels can access them uh, much more easily. Um, Specifically to islands, for example, if the island boats um, want to go out, say, to, to, to fish, they will definitely have to take uh, tides into account um, because their boats um, in a lot of islands, you don't have the infrastructure for boats to actually be tied up at um, a pier. So they have a smaller boat to get to their boat, which is out on a mooring. They might not be able to access that uh, mooring with the smaller boat, depending on tides. The weather might be too difficult. And there's it's it's like there's always this extra step with the island. So, for example, because their boat, uh, their boats are off on a mooring, they have to get a smaller boat, put the bait on the smaller boat, go to load it onto their their actual fishing boat, uh, then go off and do their fishing. Then you have the consideration of okay, how do we get this fish to market? Because it's not processed. Again, the facilities are not on the island to process it. They have to go to the mainland. What time is the buyer going to be at the mainland pier at? So the buyer might say, "I'm going to be here at six o'clock," which is fine for maybe mainland fishers. You can go over and tie up at the pier there, but the islanders have to get back to their island. What's the light doing? How much light is there left in the day? Is there time to actually get back safely? Because they need light to moor their boat, get back into the smaller boat and get back to land. So it's those kind of like really, really tiny details. And all of those cumulatively can mean that it's much, much more difficult for them to 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 access uh, the supposed public resource um linked to the fact that and this is even it, it can get very very technical so while the resources is a public resource i mentioned the engine um the kilowatts and the tonnage of the boat depending on the quota species um they might be linked 
to, uh, you might have to have a specific uh, type of uh, tonnage or kilowatts and able to be able to fish a specific type of fish. And those two things can be privately traded on the market. So for this public resource, there are aspects of it that can be privately traded. Okay. Uh, so this means that if a smaller boat wanted to um, access more quota, it would have to have the means to actually try to find uh, find more um, kilowatts linked to particular species or engine power linked to or sorry, uh, kilowatts or tonnage linked to a particular species in order to give it a right. It mightn't be able to actually find that on the market. It mightn't be able to actually buy into it. Um, so so yeah it's 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 quite a complex picture when you take kind of all both the technicalities and the kind of the the geography and the environmental considerations into account yeah that sounds very challenging it reminds mm. me i mean it's there's some interesting similarities with some island communities i know of in the Meek archipelago in myanmar for example Mm. You know, someone's working with them on their the discarded nets and taking a, a deeper look at, you know, why do they discard nets over the reefs uh, instead of disposing of them properly? And then, mm -hmm. you know, finding that it is a huge extra step for them to take a trip to the mainland, which is the only place that has the facilities for recycling the gear, um, basically taking a trip to the mainland with trash that they're offloading and the cost of fuel and all that. And I, I yeah. think that, yeah, you're right. Those extra steps might seem trivial to someone who's planning out a, a yeah. big picture uh, um, approach to things. But yeah, that's part of the reality. Yeah. And um, yeah. And I think especially when you take into account uh, the much smaller profit margins uh, of kind of the small scale, uh, the small scale vessels and the, and, and the small scale businesses. Mm. Um, so yeah, it is it it is a big consideration. Like, can they actually afford to to spend that extra, not just money but time as well, on yeah. on, on, on making that extra trip? And what what is what's kind of the current status of well being or resilience of these island communities, and how how are the fisheries doing? How how are their livelihoods doing? Uh, they've been hit. I mean, they, I mentioned the small profit margins. I mean, they, uh, but particularly uh, in the wake of both uh, Brexit and the pandemic, they have been hit really hard. Um, mm. So, so things, th things are really difficult for them. Um, think things are really difficult for them generally. Um, on a broader scale, um, the voices that tend to be represented at decision-making tables where the important kind of fisheries decisions are made and that shape the kind of systems that we have um, they tend not to feature uh, they tend to feature more of the large-scale fisheries voices mm -hmm. and representatives than small-scale fisheries um, and that can be seen if you look at uh, the makeup of our producer organizations um, who largely only represent the large-scale fishing fleet um, very recently in the last year, uh, the islands have got recognition for a producer organization specifically for island boats, but uh, which was a huge step forward for them because now they have access to decision making tables that they weren't able to access before. However, they have not been allocated funding alongside this recognition as a producer organization. So, and they don't have the deep pockets to kind of put forward that funding themselves and then to try and get it back afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there there are kind of many many stumbling blocks there. It, it's almost like oh here 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 are these rights you you uh, we are allocating to you. <clears throat> Good luck accessing them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Um, are these are these communities? Are they kind of aging like like other you know small scale fishing communities where the young generation is is leaving for better opportunities? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there there is uh, there's definitely an aging demographic. There is a real concern on the islands about kind of the drain of young people from the islands. Um, and it's almost an accepted thing. I mean, young people will have to leave the islands, for example, to continue their education if they mm -hmm. want to go to uh, university and they may or may not come back. It may not be feasible for them to kind of build a life on the islands. 
Um, and I suppose that's where remote working is becoming increasingly important. So, for example, you have one of the small islands in the northwest of Ireland called Aran Moor, um, which uh, developed a remote working hub in conjunction with one of our um, uh, our network providers. Um, uh, and that was and they are actively they have kind of a an, an active campaign to both bring people home people from Aramore to bring them back to say look you can do if you can do your work remotely you can do it from here you can do it from anywhere oh, in the world yeah. but also trying to welcome um other people in as well so to actively kind of repopulate it through uh harnessing the latest technology um so that is very much uh that is very much a drive that is there that is very much a concern um because a lot of the islands will uh rely an awful lot on on tourism and as the pandemic has shown it's 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 uh, when that isn't there um it's very very dangerous uh, yeah. to be almost fully reliant for, for for the economy of ireland to be almost fully reliant on the income from from tourism alone yeah I, I like that um, that creative solution, though, and mm. there's definitely a, a, a trend. I think of places trying to attract what the yeah. digital nomads. So, mm, yeah, digital nomads, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So, are there other kind of pathways for more resilient communities on on these islands? Um, I think. Pathways for more resilient communities. Yes, I think definitely kind of the technology and the digital revolution is definitely one such pathways. I mean, literally attracting people to be there. Um, but also seeing, say, the realities of small fishing communities, small island communities reflected in the systems that are supposed to be serving them. Mm -hmm. um, rather than just having to operate systems that have been designed around kind of dominant realities which may not reflect theirs and they kind of exist in a little carve out within that larger system um for yeah so one of the pathways i think to 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 well-being of these smaller communities is actually to have uh systems which they themselves have shaped are able to shape and can see reflecting their own realities in in a meaningful way not just mm -hmm. as kind of an add-on or a carve out yeah and and I, I love hearing you say that because my my own experience um, kind of haphazardly gathered from my exposure to different communities mm. and, and learning from kind of cross sector projects where I get to work mm. with people working on livelihoods and, and governance and, and even some humanitarian efforts is that these are all processes, conservation and environmental management included. These are all um, kind of human processes and, and mm -hmm. across all of those sectors, there would be so many benefits to taking the approach that you just you know mentioned is, is have it really grounded in, in actual mm -hmm. reality for, for what mm -hmm. your, your target beneficiaries, so to speak, are, are living. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, it's almost, it's almost just like involving more common sense in how, yeah. how decisions are, are made yeah um so I'd, I'd love to know how did you i know i've noticed that some of your work has also been in scotland yeah what what drew you to working with with fisheries in in scotland in ireland in that area mm -hmm. um well it was it, i was in scotland when i was uh doing or when i started to do my phd and that brought me to the outer hebrides to the small island of barra which is a small uh, fishing community in itself. So I suppose that kind of started my interest that that was kind of the location. For, I wasn't specifically seeking to work with a, a, a fishing community um, or even island communities. Um, but my PhD ended being around uh, being around a kind of a deeply entrenched conservation conflict around a, a marine protected area in that small island community. Um, and fishers were a very, very important uh, part of that community. And as I was doing my PhD part time in in Scotland, um, I connected with a an, another social scientist from the island of Skye, um, another Scottish island, and he happened to be based at Ulster University at the time in Northern Ireland and a mutual friend connected us. Um, and he was working uh, with the islanders in Aran Moor, the Irish islands, 
Um, I started work, I was also kind of collaborating with an artist. The three of us started working together. So Aaron Moore was one of the islands that came into our uh, art science project at the time. So that was my first connection, I suppose, to the Irish islands uh, or to Irish small scale fisheries. Uh, now that was maybe 2011, 2012. It wasn't until 2017 that I actually came back to Ireland. Mm. Um, and completely coincidentally, one of the islanders on that island of Aaron Moore uh, contacted the head of the kind of the university research center where I was working. He had no idea I had moved back to Ireland that I was working there. And uh, he was looking for academics to kind of work with the community on research. So the head of the research center sent an email to me and said, would you be interested in this? And I said, I know this person. <laughs> <laughs> and I was in the process of designing kind of a research proposal. Uh, so I thought, wow, okay, so I have like fishing communities that are uh, looking for researchers to work with them. I mean, that's the ideal situation, you people coming yeah. to you. Um, so uh, my research project kind of ended up being designed around uh, small, small scale island fisheries. Um, so, so it was kind of a series of, of, of events that, that, that brought me into contact um, with the, with the uh, small scale fisheries in Ireland, as well as the decision to kind of move home and base myself in Ireland. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's wonderful that they that they reached out and were looking mm -hmm. for research partnerships. Mm. What, was, what um, if you know, what, what kind of um, was a driver for them reaching out? What kind of research were they looking to be done? Around co-design. They yeah. wanted, they wanted to, and they want to be much more involved in kind of shaping the systems within, they within which they work. <laughs> and they particularly want a system for fisheries designed for island fisheries that draws all the islands together. And um, because, for example, the Irish islands that we have, um, the offshore islands that we have, which are along the west coast, they fall within four different counties. So they fall within four different local authority jurisdictions. Um, so the islands tend to argue for treatment of the islands as a kind of a coherent region rather right. than separated across all these local authorities and uh, a co-management system for fisheries, uh, for island fisheries, is kind of one of the ways that they were hoping to achieve that. And so they wanted to find um, academics or researchers who had uh, experience of co-management, who had experience of working with small island communities, um, who, yes, who were willing to kind of work in a ground up participatory way um, and who had experience of working with the policy environment. So. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, and I, in the contexts where I've worked, I've definitely come across a very troubling notion that mm. all scale fishing communities are primitive and only focused on their livelihood and, and not yeah. able to think in any sophisticated way. Yeah. And certainly not capable of research. Uh, and, and, you know, mm. these are from, you know, countries where maybe it's more hierarchical. Mm. Um, but what I found is where there are situations where communities are actively engaged in a way that sees them as potential future leaders. Um, yeah. I, I'm just so impressed, and not from a condescending point of view, but like very mm -hmm. impressed with the quality of, of leadership and thought and, and work that they do, you know, and in some mm -hmm. places where I've worked the best presentations at the you know, mm -hmm. consultations or workshops are regularly from the Fisher associations. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, I, I just loved hearing uh, you mention how they, they already had this idea in mind. Yeah. You know, they knew yeah. what they wanted and they knew that mm -hmm. some technical help, some technical mm. support would be helpful, but they were driving the process. Absolutely. Yeah. And I have consistently found that as well. Uh, the level of skills, knowledge, whatever. Yeah, it's 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 incredible. And it is it is a real asset and i think in the work that i was doing in in scotland in my phd it was one of the in one of the first kind of submissions that i made to a consultation that the government had around conservation was one of the things that i highlighted um that there was a whole lot of kind of knowledge and skills and expertise um that needed to be harnessed that was that that that, that was there in order to be able to kind of work in in partnership uh, with this particular island community in the context of kind of governance of their um, of their marine environment in a way that kind of made sense to them and in a way that took account of kind of the the realities of island life and their sociocultural heritage while at the same time on the side of the islanders it needed to uh, make sense within the policy environment as well 
Yeah, and that that linkage is is so important. Mm. Um, so I have definitely seen lots of projects use the phrase or the word co-design. Mm -hmm. I've, I've been a reviewer on on grant panels where they're like, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll be participatory, just trust us, it will be. Yeah. Uh, without kind of outlining <laughs> concrete steps, kind of treating yeah. that aspect of the proposal as a throwaway. Yeah. You know, as, you know, you know, we just write this in so we get the grant and then they yeah. make some presentations to stakeholders at some point in the process. And the way you're speaking about the work and when I've been reading about your work online, it's it's nice to read about something that kind of is implementing co-design in the way that it is meant, which is mm -hmm. from the beginning. Um, yep. So we've already touched on having the community driving the process, but in, in your experience, what what are some of the, the key components that mm. helps this co-design process move along in, in that kind of um, genuinely participatory way mm. question but <laughs> yeah um there are a few things i think uh one of the most important things is allowing time and space for conflict and disagreement mm. um not just between kind of the research kind of between the community you're working with and kind of i don't know the academic outlook or the other participants stakeholders policy environment or whatever but within the community itself, because as you well know, communities are not homogenous beings. There are as there are so many sides to every narrative, like not just two sides to a story. There are so many different versions <laughs> of kind of narratives and stories that, that that you can get. And it's really, really important to be aware of that and to allow space for that to exist. Um, and linked to that, I think it's really important in uh, a co-design process to not be trying to rush towards any kind of a consensus view or not necessarily even having consensus as a goal mm. um, because that can often be a false achievement and that can often paper over uh, kind of disagreement or difficulties or tensions that are there that will kind of just filter through in other ways. Um, I think also, yeah, and linked to those two, what is fundamental to co-design is and this is also the difficulty, particularly when you're working with the policy environment, is time, mm. time to make mistakes, uh, time to trial things, time to fail, uh, time to adapt. And this can set up a really difficult tension with kind of the partners that you're working with, because they, for example, in the policy environment, they might have certain objectives to meet. They might have time frames that they have to like international or national obligations that they that, that they are kind of pushing towards mm -hmm. and that doesn't always sit easily alongside the kind of the because co-design is a messy process it's a really really messy process and you never know when something is going to click or if it is going to click maybe it won't click right. at all um so so yeah it's kind of managing that um so there's an awful lot of managing of human relationships in that and that is fundamental as well to kind of the co-design process mm -hmm. um and then also within co-design i think having the ability if like co-design involves people being at uh, decision making tables um okay they have a seat at the decision making table but do they actually have uh, the ability to influence outcomes by kind of inputting into that um, so a good example of this i think is what happened on the island of barra in outer hebrides when the um contentious marine protected area the minister had finally taken uh, the decision to actually uh designate it and um people within the community who were very against this designation did not want to discuss the possibility of a management plan. They didn't want to, because the government was saying, it'll be designated, but you can have your say in the management plan. And they were like, but we didn't want it anyway, you're imposing it on us. So uh, without kind of going into all the details, there were eventually discussions between some people in the government around a management plan. And at one point, the particular civil servant who was liaising with them, presented them with a draft management plan from the government as a kind of a basis for, for discussions. And it was rejected outright. And this particular civil servant had been at enough meetings with the community, had listened to them enough to kind of recognize 
uh, the skills and the knowledge and the abilities that were there to recognize the way they worked. So something quite unusual happened. He went back to his team and to the ministers and to the other civil servants and said, we need to start with a blank sheet of paper. And he had, I think, quite a hard time selling that, but he was determined. He looked, no, we actually need to start with a blank sheet of paper. This is not going to work. That was so significant. Yeah. That was that really showed me that that was a co-design process that um, like a civil servant was willing to kind of go. We need to like set aside the work we've done and come back and start actually at the step before where yeah. we thought we could start because they actually started before the blank sheet of paper, which was um, they appointed uh, rather than an external expert or uh, rather than kind of a member of government or rather than an external consultant, they appointed, they appointed somebody from a community company. The community company put themselves forward to be a facilitator between, because there were several yeah. islands that were affected by this marine protected area, uh, to be a facilitator um, to decide what kind of management structure, what should the management structure look like? Who should be yeah. on it? And what, what were the issues that were really important to kind of take into account? And they funded the uh the local community company to do that work and to produce a report um so again that was like maybe two three steps before what the civil servant had thought when they came along with the kind of the the, the draft management plan yeah. um so 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 that's that's a really good concrete example of how co-design can work in practice mm -hmm. and it involves people taking risks um yeah. and equally it wasn't just the civil servant who was taking risks. It was the people within the community who had kind of stepped forward and said, OK, we are willing to have discussions with this civil servant, which put them at odds with other people in their community. who thought oh, yeah. they were kind of selling out right. their, their cause. So each kind of party put themselves into what I would say it would be quite a vulnerable position vis-a-vis -vis their peers mm -hmm. um, and and found themselves on new ground and and something that uh, was kind of meaningful co-design, I think, came out of that. Yeah, that's a fantastic example. Mm. And um, I've, you know, some of my research has looked at evaluating what's happened in conservation situations, often involves kind of excavating back years or decades to see mm. where something went right, where something went wrong. Um, and what I've found too often is that people trying to accomplish the interventions, the external actors often, mm. um, the conservationists, they only kind of give one sort of not well thought out path at engaging with the community when it mm. comes to decision making. Ha they're happy to do, you know, like presentations for kids and then give out pamphlets and have cute stickers and mascots. But when it comes to like consultations, they'll go, well, we invited them. Or yeah. we communicated our findings and then you dig a little deeper and there's no sense of like accountability for okay if that initial reaching out didn't elicit a meaningful response let's dig a little deeper and, mm -hmm. and see where you know we need to meet the audience where they are yeah um, and so that is it is often lacking so to see to you know, see this example is it's a i think it's um really important to, to have examples like this be highlighted and to mm -hmm. show that it actually does yield some something meaningful mm -hmm. and in the end it's probably it's more productive to take the mm -hmm. time to take that step back and then reevaluate mm -hmm. how you're approaching it yeah yeah um and what you were saying about human relationships <laughs> and mm -hmm. also something <laughs> i find myself in situations where like i can't believe i'm spending energy mitigating this conflict just because these people don't like each other based on something that happened way before I even yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know fair enough right we all have our histories of, of yeah. context of, of how we've related to different people or different groups of people and, and it's a very human thing to have those mm -hmm. kind of legacy um, so for those communities um, to also be willing to work with the government in that example also shows a willingness to yeah. said, be vulnerable and trust that maybe things can be different. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really important. Mm -hmm. And um, that's also something that just, you know, skimming through the work that you've done online. Uh, one thing that struck me is that, and, and you can correct me if I'm way off, mm -hmm. <laughs> it, 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 I see this, this thread where it's 
you kind of acknowledge the humanity of the stakeholders involved. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not these opposing parties. They're not these yes. kind of monoliths that are operating in kind of strict mm -hmm. predetermined ways. You know, that yeah. everyone's every one of these groups is composed of people and they all have their own stories mm -hmm. and experiences and biases. Yeah. Uh, and I think that this is such an important way to approach environmental management or, or mm. conservation. Um, is this something that you came into the field already considering, or is it something that came out of your experiences with communities? How did you come to adopt this this way of thinking? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I, th I think you're absolutely right. It is a very strong thread to, through my research. And I also agree with you that it is crucially important. I think as I was um, actually carrying out my research that I wasn't necessarily aware that this was such an unusual thread to have through mm -hmm. my like it, it, it sort of came naturally um, to me to, to, to do this um, and to yeah I suppose it came from came from listening very deeply i suppose to kind of the different stories wherever they were where they, wherever they were coming from and recognizing the the humanity uh in that um so yeah uh and i suppose i i, I can't remember when exactly i became conscious of that or conscious that that was uh I suppose a kind of feminist approach to research. Mm. It certainly, I certainly didn't apply any of those labels to it um, at the time. Um, for me, it was the only way to navigate uh, what was an extremely tricky um, and and complex kind of area and 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 conflict um, was to acknowledge the humanity, was to acknowledge the. Um, the emotions, the politics, the highly charged nature of every single situation and to navigate that with extreme care. I think mm -hmm. you really have to be aware of the humanity of like all players in it and to uh, to be very careful uh, not to fall into, I suppose, demonizing is probably too strong a word but kind of characterizing or framing particular actors in any particular way because it's so slippery and it's so fluid yeah. um and i think um that's the key because once you're in that space of acknowledging that everything is really slippery and really fluid then that opens up spaces for things to move mm. for actors to move to kind of different positions those positions of vulnerability that i was talking about previously so they can kind of move in relation to each other. And that's where maybe um, new opportunities or new conversations or new possibilities can arise that may have seemed impossible from when they were in a different position in relation to each other, right. perhaps locked, locked in the kind of the typical uh, frames of the roles that they are supposed to be playing. Um, I liked I had I hadn't really thought about that that word that kind of fluidity or you know the kind of dynamic mm. nature but that really um, that's an interesting way to look at it I'm definitely going mm. to think about that a bit more mm -hmm. uh, but yeah I, I can see why that's a, a powerful and, and really helpful uh, mm. concept to have what I was thinking about earlier and I was thinking I think actually acknowledging the humanity and the messiness of it allows us to approach conservation particularly where there are conflicts in place much more honestly mm. um and uh because things are not clear-cut um it's uh so yeah acknowledging that we are all acknowledging the humanity means acknowledging that we're all we're all flawed that we're all seeing things through uh certain prisms shaped by particular contexts that we have come from Mm -hmm. um and and again that and, and that engenders kind of a much more empathetic and i suppose compassionate approach towards each other um mm -hmm. and it allows kind of when i say shared understandings to arise again i'm not talking about consensus or agreement um but appreciation of people kind of being in different positions and where that comes from um when people hold very kind of rigid and firmly entrenched views it's difficult to kind of be in that space where uh, 
where you can acknowledge that that that, that there are very different ways of kind of uh, approaching the issue at hand that might be equally valid. Yeah, and that's I mean that really resonates with with my own experience too, um, mm. as does kind of your <laughs> your um, what you said about how you didn't realize that that this mm. kind of humanistic view of of conservation situations was unusual. Um, mm. Same for me. I, I I remember even I went on a, like a field semester abroad to Panama, um, and we were driving in the, the group bus past someone who was doing slash and burn agriculture. Mm. Some of the other students were like, "Why are they doing that?" Like in a voice of like intense criticism, and I was mm -hmm. like, "Do you not see where we are? <laughs> like, do yeah. you not see like that this is an area where there's pretty much nothing, and there's mm -hmm. like this this person appears to not have a lot of resources handy, and that was I think that was my first yeah that might have been my first realization that this this kind of seeing things as they are." And not mm -hmm. separating yourself like i'm on this this bus i'm from a wealthy university in the mm -hmm. united states and i'm on this bus and i'm in a separate world than this person and i don't need to take into account what they're going through that's actually kind of a, a metaphor i think for a lot of, of conservationists and environmental managers yeah. yeah i think i think we get a lot of training a technical train my background was ecology um mm. and you you have this veil of expertise Mm -hmm. uh, and it kind of puts you in a position where you're not opening your eyes to what happens outside of that very specific lane in which you've been trained. And mm -hmm. I, I think that that distance is is quite a disservice to yeah. the productivity of a lot of this, this conservation work. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned that word kind of separation, like the the image of the kind of people in the in the bus from kind of uh, a much more wealthy background looking mm -hmm. at the the, the uh, poorer farmer kind of doing the slash and burn agriculture um and i think that separation is or that kind of acknowledgement of that separation is key to kind of what i was talking about earlier it kind of mm -hmm. it links the humanity and acknowledging kind of the messier messy context that, that, that we actually come from because it means that when we acknowledge uh humanity we uh also to some extent are it necessarily makes us acknowledge kind of the socio-cultural environmental context that we come from and that means that we are thinking from a place that is a lot more entangled in relation to human nature relationships mm -hmm. it's not coming from a place where we conceptualize nature for example as a provider of ecosystem goods and services to a separate human consumer um and I think acknowledging that there are very different ways of conceptualizing that society, nature, human nature relationship is key. Um, and acknowledging the power of a particular conceptualization being accepted as the way to conceptualize it. And that leading to uh, kind of the institutions or the systems that it, that it shapes. It's really important to be transparent about that and to put that up front and to acknowledge the assumptions that are underlying that and that there are other ways of thinking about things and doing about things that might not be getting the same airtime. Exactly, exactly. Um, I, I would love to learn from you, chat with you for a while, but <laughs> I'll start bringing us to some of the, the closing questions. Mm. Um, and this is not one that I'd sent ahead of time, but I, I'm curious, how do you see or define your own role or contribution in the conservation process? Do you call yourself a conservation researcher? I know you, you're kind of mm. more in the fisheries management and how that links to conservation yeah. debate, but how would you define it if someone were to say, oh, you, do you work in conservation? Are you saving the planet? Like, what? how would you? Yeah, <laughs> I can't. I really struggle with labels. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there are a variety of different labels that I could apply. Um, I don't know. I sometimes I and this isn't an academic term at all. I think of myself almost as a chameleon kind of yeah. <laughs> between all these these different these different worlds um, or an integrator kind of trying to build bridges between different worlds. Um, I don't know if you've come across the the, the label or the term uh, integration expert. That's one that mm -hmm. has kind of uh, come about over the last few years and I came across it through uh, Professor Sabine Hoffman, who's based in um, Switzerland, 
in a research policy uh, workshop in Trinity, which is the Trinity College Dublin, which is the university that I'm affiliated with. Mm-hmm. A concept of integration expert is trying to find a term that describes uh, researchers, I suppose, like me, who work at different interfaces, whether that's social science to policy, social science with uh, local communities that are embedded in and move between very different contexts that who can uh, say advise other people on in academia for example on how their research might actually find its way into the policy environment and have an impact mm-hmm. um, that can build bridges build relationships all of those things that are fundamental to the kind of con- conservation that we're talking about yeah. um, but they're not necessarily recognized as a particular skill set within the academic uh environment yet at least Mm -hmm. um so yeah i suppose that's one of the labels i've more recently been kind of uh using to describe myself integration expert because it is kind of so open and and fluid um but conservationist no that's not a label that i would put on myself because i think that would automatically separate me or exclude me from having from, from connecting to so many people that I work with mm. um, because of kind of the emotional charge that comes with that word conservation. Um, yeah. And yeah, um, yeah, or even, yeah, so I would probably just often just describe myself with the very simple word of researcher or yeah. a researcher who works between uh, communities, academia and, uh, and the policy environment. Okay, that's I, I like that integration expert. That's mm. really cool. And yeah, researcher is, I think, a very it it kind of nicely highlights where the expertise is, mm. not necessarily in the whole of the conservation process as a, as yeah. a social process, but way mm-hmm. where the training has been is the research. I think that's a, actually mm-hmm. uh, there's uh, power in that simplicity. Yeah, <laughs> um, and this is. Not aside, but a little bit of, of a tiny tangent from what we've been talking about. But as I mentioned before, my, my brother, he's he's a poet. He just published his first book of poems, actually. Um, oh, congratulations. Um, thank you. Yeah. Um, he's got some he's got some poems about Ireland in there, actually. So mm-hmm. um, but as he was discovering his love of poetry, we happened. I don't know if you posted it on. It must have been on Twitter. Um, we learned about your found poems. I liked all of them. My my favorite, I think, was the the women. Women, yeah. <laughs> um, do you have it handy, or do you want me to share a screen? No, if you can do a share screen, yeah, that would of be, course. That would be great. Um, but yes, it would be so great to have you read it out loud, and then maybe tell us a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. Let me figure out the share screen thing. Always tricky for me on an external monitor. Oh. <laughs> you think after all this time using Zoom, I'd be a little more proficient. Are you oh, there we go. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Women. Women are not really involved in fisheries on the island. She's the backbone, keeps the whole show on the road. Doing the VAT returns, sorting out the wages, paying bills, picking up crew, sourcing parts, going to meetings, putting up with people constantly coming in and out of her house. You have so much to do behind the scenes. And even though you're not physically on the boat, once they're out there, you're with them 110%. Women are not really involved in fisheries on the island. Thank you. I love that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it really captures a lot of, you know, again, even though the fisheries I work in are in very different contexts, you do see this kind of very important but very underappreciated role of, of women mm-hmm. in fisheries yeah um, and it's almost like the the part where there's the harvest going out on the boat mm. it's just the tip of the iceberg so to speak mm-hmm. um, so can you share a little bit about you know how you came to be making these poems and kind <laughs> of the process that um is involved yes um it wasn't my intention to create poetry at all for anything other than myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was 
I was writing, well, I was struggling to write my um, kind of more conventional academic paper around this research. Um, and I felt uh, really, really stuck with it. Mm. Um, and I, I really just, I thought, okay, why don't I just put the paper aside and I'll just play with my data? Because the data was so rich and so beautiful and there was so much in it that um, I thought I'll just play with them in, in a more creative way mm-hmm. to see if I get myself out of this block of writing this <laughs> academic paper. And the thought had just come into my head, I think it was a few months earlier, um, to make poems out of my data. And I had stuck the post-it somewhere. I don't know when, why it came into my head, how it came into my head, but that post-it was sitting there. So I thought, okay, I'm going to try and create some poetry out of this. So I just started playing with the data. Um, and it was probably over the course of, I don't know, two days, I think maybe one or two days, that collection of kind of seven poems emerged. I mean, that one woman is, is, is quite short. Um, so it was a very fluid and kind of organic process of play that led to that poetry. And as they, and they came together really, um, I don't know, I, it was a, it's such a different process to writing an academic paper because because I wasn't producing it for a particular purpose. I thought they were just for me. I wasn't kind of overthinking it. Mm-hmm. I wasn't. Um, yeah, it, 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 it wasn't that kind of very painful thinking process mm-hmm. that be associated with writing or it can often be associated with writing yeah. an academic paper. So it flowed. They flowed really easily. Um, I suppose I wasn't judging myself as I was kind of putting them together. I was I was just enjoying myself. Um, and as they emerged, I thought, because I'm always very conscious of um, what are the ways that I can present my research that will reach more people? And also, what are the ways that I can uh, present my research that actually foreground more of the voices that are the heart of that research? Because it's not my voices, it's their voices. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, okay, maybe there is something here that would be worth sharing. I I think I had sent one or two of the poems to to some colleagues. Um, And one colleague, uh, Wesley Flannery in Queen's University, Belfast, said, are you going to submit these for publication? And I said, where where could I publish these? And he said, oh, there's the the journal, the critical geographies journal, ACME, often takes creative submissions. So it was thanks to Wes that I even considered kind of submitting them to a journal i would not even have considered it otherwise um so it was a um yes a a series of coincidences that led both to the poems emerging and to them being published in an academic journal as well i love that and uh yeah i was also surprised because when i was reading them it was from that acme Mm. uh, publication um but i i really enjoy that because I, I felt the same reading through my data and yeah and I was, I'm always in awe of just like you said the beautiful richness of the information yeah. I'm getting and and the stories that I get from people and they're so powerful and often very um disregarded in kind mm-hmm. of formal platforms mm-hmm. <laughs> so to to be able to celebrate that richness but also yeah like you said uh, present it in, in a way where it can be viewed from a slightly different angle is just yeah fantastic. I, I really love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you so much, Ruth. I, I really enjoyed learning from you. And um, I uh, definitely have some things I want to look up and learn more, <laughs> more about. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was so nice to to see you again. I know we only met briefly in Shanghai. Yeah. yeah. No, thank you so much for getting in touch. I really enjoyed our chat as well. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Take care, Tara. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Jala he Dukapaji ตาโรอาลอกเปียวชวนสยาด้วยเปสวนนี้ตุเปียวนี้อ่ะผิดเส้นโลเลยเส้นแลนนี้ลับปาจีเยกงโกซองเนตุลาด้วยไหนเชิ
ตาวายเมียวสัตตาปาโบเลตาปาวายเจยาฤมิตินายมาสิเมนโลนาไทมินตุยจินเลตุเทยเตยจาโซนากัมมาเลเมยเอนวิตุยจินโอเนลี ซาวชาวเลมิมิตาสุกญีโกมาวนมาไตเบเลอวินิตุยสัลโลเตซองกาเลเทเตเฮลูไดมาโกซิตาวอชิเบโนบาเซยโจเนโอแจมเปียไล